Welcome to Sit in Your Cell, wisdom from the wilderness for those walking in the world. Often considered the last great Byzantine theologian, Nicholas Cabasilus (1323–1392) lived through a difficult period of history. It was clear by the late 14th century that the Paleologos dynasty, while having restored control of Byzantium to the Greeks, would never recover the former glory of their empire. Theological controversies between the Hesychast and Scholastic traditions divided the church and threatened to undo the spirit of Eastern Christianity. The rise of the Ottoman Turks to the east cast a long shadow over the struggling empire and sounded the first chimes of the Bells of Doom. Out of this context, Cabasilus produced one of the most essential works in the entire Christian tradition, his seven-volume work, the life in Christ. In examination of sacramental theology, the divine mysteries, and theosis, it stands as a concise summation of the Eastern patristic tradition. But more than this, it stands as a work of hope for dark times. For Cabasilus, no matter how difficult and painful the world becomes, the Christian always has hope because he shares in the life of Christ. I would highly recommend this work to anyone seeking to grow deeper in their faith, to understand the mystery of our salvation, and to live a truly ascetic life. And so I would like to read just a couple chapters from the first section of this work, to give a taste of Cabasilus's brilliance and the wonderful importance of his message. The life in Christ originates in this life and arises from it. It is perfected, however, in the life to come, when we shall have reached that last day. It cannot attain perfection in men's souls in this life, nor even in that which is to come, without already having begun here, since that which is carnal, the mist and corruption which derive from the flesh, cannot inherit incorruption. It casts a shadow over that life in this present time. Therefore, Paul thought it to be a great advantage to depart in order to be with Christ, for he says, to depart and to be with Christ is far better. But if the life to come were to admit those who lack the faculties and senses necessary for it, it would avail nothing for their happiness, but they would be dead and miserable living in that blessed and immortal world. The reason is that the light would appear and the sun would shine in its pure rays with no eye having been formed to see it. The spirit's fragrance would not be abundantly diffused and pervading all, but one would not know it without already having a sense of smell. Now it is possible for the Son of God to make his friends to share in his mysteries, in preparation for that day, and for them to learn from him what he has heard from the Father. But they must come as his friends who have ears to hear. Then it is impossible to begin the friendship and to open the ear, to prepare the wedding garment, and to make ready the other requisites for that bride chamber. It is this life which is the workshop for all these things. Those, then, who have not acquired these things before they depart have nothing in common with that life. To this the five foolish virgins and the man invited to the wedding feast are witnesses, since they came without either the oil or the wedding garment and were not able to buy them. In short, it is this world which is in travail with that new inner man which is created after the likeness of God. When he has been shaped and formed here, he is thus born perfect into that perfect world which grows not old. As nature prepares the fetus, while it is in its dark and fluid life, for that life which is in the light, and shapes it as though according to a model, for the life which it is about to receive, so likewise it happens to the saints. 
This is what the Apostle Paul said when he wrote to the Galatians, My little children, with whom I am again in travail until Christ be formed in you. However, while the unborn have no perception whatever of this life, the blessed ones have many hints in this present life of things to come. This is the reason. The unborn do not yet possess this life, but it is holy in the future. In that condition there is no ray of light, nor anything else which sustains life. In our case this is not so, but that future life is, as it were, infused into this present life and mingled with it. So for us too that sun has graciously risen, the heavenly fragrance has been poured forth into melodorous places, and the bread of angels has been given even to men. In this present world, therefore, it is possible for the saints not only to be disposed and prepared for that life, but also even now to live and act in accordance with it. Paul writes, lay hold on eternal life, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The divine Ignatius says, there is water living and speaking in me. Scripture is full of such passages. Besides all these, when he who is in the life promises to the saints to be with them forever, and says, Behold, I am with you always, to the close of the age, what else should one think? When he has sown the seed of life on earth, and has cast it on the fire and the sword, he did not forthwith depart and leave it to men to plant and nourish the seed and to kindle the fire and use the sword. He himself is truly with us, and works in us to will and to do, as the blessed Paul said. It is he himself who kindles and applies the fire. He himself holds the sword. In short, neither does the axe boast without him who lifts it. Those from whom the good one is absent will attain to no good. Yet the Lord did not promise merely to be present with his saints, but to abide with them. No, more than this, to make his abode in them. What then shall I say? Where it is said that he is united with them, it is with such love that he becomes one spirit with them. As Paul says, he who is united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him, and that you may be one body and one spirit, just as you were called. As God's loving kindness is ineffable, and his love for our race surpasses human speech and reason, so too it belongs to the divine goodness alone, for this is the peace of God which passes all understanding. Likewise, it follows that his union with those whom he loves surpasses every union of what which one might conceive, and cannot be compared with any model. Therefore, even scripture needed many illustrations to be able to express that connection, since one would not suffice. In one place it employs the figures of an inhabitant and a dwelling, and another those of a vine and a branch, here that of marriage, and there that of members of a head. None of those figures is adequate for that union, for it is impossible from these to attain the exact truth. Above all, it is necessary that the union should conform to friendship. Yet what could be adequate for divine love? It would appear that marriage and the concord between head and members especially indicate connection and unity. Yet they fall far short of it and are far from manifesting the reality. Marriage does not so join together that those who are united exist and live in each other, as is the case with Christ and the church. So the divine apostle speaking of marriage says, this is a great mystery and adds, I speak of Christ, not the church, showing that it is not marriage, but union with Christ, which he sets up for admiration. The members are joined to the head. They are alive because they are joined and die if they are separated. But it appears that the members of Christ are more joined more closely to him than their own head, and that it is even more by him that they live than by their concord with it. This is plain from the blessed martyrs who gladly suffered the one, i.e. dismemberment of their bodies, 
but would not even hear of the other, for they gave up their heads and limbs with pleasure, but could not even by word revolt from Christ. So I come to that which is strangest. To whom else could one be more closely united than to oneself? Yet this very unity is inferior to that union, for each of the spirits of the blessed ones is identical with himself, yet it is united to the Savior more than to him. It loves the Savior more than itself, and of this Paul will bear witness by saying, of which he wishes that he were anathema from Christ for that sake of the salvation of the Jews, so that it might redound to his greater glory. But if human love is so great, the divine love is inconceivable. If the wicked can show so great gratitude, what ought to be said of God's goodness? Since the love is so immense, the union in which it has joined those who love must needs so surpass man's understanding that it cannot be likened to any similitude whatever. Let us then examine it this way. There are many things in which we stand in need of throughout life, such as air, light, food, clothing, our natural faculties and members. Yet it so happens that we do not use any of them constantly for all purposes. We use one of them at one time, another at another time, each in turn helping us to meet the need which is at hand. When we put on clothing, it cannot feed us. Those who need nourishment must seek something else. The light does not enable us to breathe. The air cannot take the place of a ray of light. We do not constantly employ all the functions of our senses and members. But from time to time, the eye and the hand are idle, as when we have to listen. The hand will suffice for those who wish to touch, but not for smelling or hearing or seeing. For those purposes, we ignore it and look to some other faculty. But in such a way, the Savior is ever present in every fashion with those who dwell in him, that he supplies their every need and is all things to them. Nor does he suffer them to look to anything else whatever, nor seeking anything from elsewhere. There is nothing of which the saints are in need which he is not himself. He gives them birth, growth, and nourishment. He is life and breath. By means of himself, he forms an eye for them, and, in addition, gives them the light and enables them to see himself. He is the one who feeds and is himself the food. It is he who provides the bread of life and is who himself that he provides. He is life for those who live, the sweet odor to those who breathe, the garment for those who would be clothed. Indeed, he is the one who enables us to walk. He himself is the way. And in addition, he is the lodging on the way and is its destination. We are members. He is the head. When we must struggle, he struggles on our side. For those who are champions in the contest, he is the awarder of the prizes. When we are victors, he is the crown of glory. Thus he turns our mind to himself from every side and does not permit it to occupy itself with anything else, nor to be seized by love for anything else. Even though we move our desire in another direction, he checks it and quiets it. He blocks that way and takes in hand those who go astray. If I go up to heaven, thou art there, it says. If I go down to hell, thou art there also. If I take up my wings in the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there also shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. By wondrous compulsion and gracious governance, he draws us to himself alone and unites us to himself only. This, I think, is the same compulsion by which he gathered those whom he invited to the house and the banquet, when he said to the servant, Compel them to come, that my house may be filled. So then, from what has been said, it is clear that the life in Christ is present to the saints, those who live and work in accordance with it, not only in the world to come, but also in that which is here now. But how is it possible to live in this way? And, as Paul says, walk in the newness of life, 
And further, what is it that they do with whom Christ is thus united and grown together? And I know not how else to describe it. it must be discussed in that which follows. There is an element which derives from God, and another which derives from our own zeal. The one is entirely his work. The other involves striving on our part. However, the latter is our contribution only to the extent that we submit to his grace and do not surrender the treasure nor extinguish the torch which has been lighted. By this I mean that we contribute nothing which is either hostile to the life or produces death. It is to this that all human good and every virtue leads, that no one should draw the sword against himself, nor flee from happiness, nor toss the crowns of victory from off his head. When Christ himself is present, he implants the very essence of life into our souls in an ineffable manner. For he is truly present, and as he by his coming has supplied the first principles of life, so he assists in their growth. He is present, however, not as when he first came to share our conditions of life, our company, and our other pursuits, but in a different and more perfect way, in that we are joined to him in the same body and share his life and are his members. So, just as his wondrous loving kindness which impelled him so to love those who were the basest and to count them worthy of the greatest favors, so the union by which he is present with the objects of his love surpasses every image and every name. Thus, too, the manner in which he is present and bestows his benefits is a marvelous one, worthy of him alone who does wondrous things. Those who imitate, as it were, by a picture, by means of certain signs and symbols, the death which he truly died for the sake of our life, he renews and recreates by these very acts and makes them partakers of his own life. Nicholas Cabasilis serves as an inspiration for the ascetic life. Himself both a lay theologian and later monastic, he understood deeply how to live for Christ, no matter one's situation. He understood that the struggle to orient one's entire life toward Christ is the ultimate end of salvation, and that the glorious life in Christ is worth giving everything we have to be joined with him.